Father, we do thank you again for the gracious gift of life, spiritual birth, renewed hope. We ask that we might be a people who keep our eyes affixed upon you, the author and finisher of our faith. That we might not only persevere in trusting ourselves to the authority of your word, but also having, having the assurance of our salvation. As we look at the text today, might we see what's being conveyed here to reassure us of your promises, using as an example a saint of old 4,000 years ago who adhered to a promise that was not foreseeable but yet he persevered. Help us, we pray, to hear and to see, and for me to communicate the glorious truth here to your people, that you might be glorified greatly. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. If you're visiting with us, uh, we want to welcome you. And if you can, hang out for at least a little while after service in the fellowship hall, that we might get to know you a bit. We are pleased to have you with us. Um, Also, before we begin, I want to give a special thanks uh, to all of those who uh, participated in this this past week's vacation Bible school for the kids. Um, Those of you who, who taught who were helpers, the moms who were there to help. Um, It was a blessing, as it always is, to see our little ones ministered to this past week. So thank you very much. Um, We're greatly appreciative, all of us, to you and your efforts there. Um, Also, I I never did um, publicly thank my two brothers, Ray Warwick and... uh, Bobby Aldus, you know, I was gone for, I don't know, four or five weeks uh, out east for a family emergency, and they filled in for me, and they preached. They did a fine job. Can't thank you both enough. Wherever you are, Bobby, I don't know where you are. Thank you both. Oh, you're both right there. Thank you. You did a fine job. I was ministered to uh, by both of you as I, as I listened online, so thank you so much. All right, beloved, now we're going to continue um, the exposition here in Romans as we look together this morning at Romans chapter 4, verses 18 to 25. So if you would, open your Bibles and please stand as I read the Word of God. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. 
fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Here then is God's word to God's people. And you may be seated. More than two billion people profess to be Christian, which means that more than two billion people profess to be the spiritual seed of Abraham, worshiping the one who's the divine seed of Abraham. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means that more than two billion people call on the one true God and claim Abraham to be their spiritual father. A man who 4,000 years ago was childless. You get the picture? (laughs) And when he was yet childless, God said, I have made you the father of many nations. The promise of the great promise maker is the promise of the great promise keeper. Amen? Now, when you look around at the people here this morning, uh, most, if not all, in this room have no blood relationship to Abraham whatsoever, but are his children by faith and God's grace. A living testimony that God is able to fulfill what he promises Delivering a people from sin and death and justifying them by faith, what? Alone. By faith alone. Justification by faith alone is the theme of Romans chapter 4, just in case you haven't caught on yet. (laughs) So justification by faith, beloved, is not merely a doctrine among other doctrines. Justification by faith alone is not a new doctrine. It's not a New Testament doctrine. Paul, right here, is in the midst of an exposition of Genesis 15 and verse 6. This is a sermon from one little verse. It's cited back in verse 3. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And now he's expounding that truth. He's explaining that glorious truth. That's what biblical exposition is. You read it and you explain it. You read it, you explain it over and over and over again. Defining for us, beloved, the way God justifies sinners. Defining for us the way he has always saved sinners. Always saved believers in this way. Where all sinners, Old Testament or New Testament, come to the gospel on equal ground. With equal need, on equal terms, justified by faith in Christ alone and his merited work and worth. That's the gospel. 
all part of the same redeemed family, according to faith, distributed according to God's grace. Unmerited favor. There's not a one of us that deserves this gracious gift of eternal life through faith in Christ. And even faith itself is a gift. So all people then in Christ share an equal need, whether one was privileged to be born inside the covenant community, bearing the sign of the Old Testament covenant of circumcision, or being born into a Christian family under the new. Our justification is by grace through faith because of Christ alone. Nothing to be added in order to merit this gracious gift. Now, Paul emphasizes this, saying, notice in verse 16, that is why it depends on faith. Okay? Now, notice, it's followed by a purpose clause. In order that the promise may rest on what? Let's say it. Grace. Grace. Faith and grace. Saving faith that justifies That is, to declare the sinner free from all blame. To actually declare the sinner as righteous is made manifest solely because of grace. Verse 16. To what end? Notice the text. So that the promise might be guaranteed, that is, made sure to all his offspring. Made sure. To all that is who walk in the footsteps of faith that Abraham had. Verse 12. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that a righteous would be counted to them as well. That, beloved, is assurance. To be saved and know that I am saved. You know, we're told in Scripture not to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, Right? James tells us not to be double-minded people, wavering as one who's blown by the wind, never coming to a place of conviction and an assurance of one's salvation. And some people actually depart from healthy churches that declare justification by faith alone only to adopt certain rituals and practices that they think some kind, somehow kind of infuse an additional grace that merits salvation coupled up with the work of Christ. Not so. Some professing Christians think it's arrogant and presumptuous to be sure of your salvation. Yet we're given the exhortation in the New Testament to make your call and election what, beloved? Sure. Second Peter 1. Make your call and election sure. To be sure of our status. To be sure of our position before God as recipients of his promise by way of grace. You see, if justification, as Paul has already argued, if justification was according to law, there could be no assurance because there could be no salvation. There's nobody could keep the law. Because faith in the promise of God would be, verse 14, null and void. God's promise would be null and void. We looked at that last time. Now, I've told you of people who have actually departed from here and have departed from other Protestant churches um, for Catholicism actually denying justification by faith alone. 
And one person that I met with went as, to, as far as to say that purgatory is a good idea because it will peep, keep people on the straight and narrow. That's a man-made teaching. Five years ago, I visited with, some, I visited with one who left the church and I went to graciously listen to what they had to say. And they said, all I hear is about the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God, the grace of God, the sovereignty of God. I said, exactly. <laughs> but you see, that argument says we can't be sure, certain of our salvation by simply believing and trusting God's grace and his sovereignty. That's where that argument leads. When you want to deny that. But here, Paul draws from the life of Abraham in order to provide two things, beloved. Number one is an explanation of faith, according to God's grace, through the example of Abraham himself. And secondly, the experience of faith for us. So that we can be sure of God's promises, that is, assured of our salvation. Our first point this morning is faith explained. This is in your outline. The examples Abraham. Verse 17b. Paul continues on in his exposition, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the what, beloved? To the dead. And calls into existence the things that do not exist. There was one point in time in which you did not exist as a spiritually living, regenerated believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You were dead in your sins. To be justified by faith is to be one who believes. Abraham believed. And beloved, it's not merely believing the facts about God. Believing the facts about God don't save, or even agreeing with those same facts don't save in and of themselves. Believing about God doesn't save. Believing in God doesn't save, because the scripture says that even Satan and the demons believe. They believe in God. Oh, do they believe in God. And they know their time is short, and they, the scripture says in James, tremble. See, true faith is believing God. It's believing God, accepting as true his work and his worth and trusting in him alone according to his word. That's saving faith. Placing your personal trust and faith in Christ who alone justifies the sinner. That's what saves. That's who saves Entrusting your life to him. Entrusting your afterlife to him. Trusting his promises while you live, although you cannot see the ultimate end of those promises. We can't see with, with these eyes the ultimate end, can we? No, that's why we live by faith. Which is a gift. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things, what? Not seen. This is not a blind leap of faith into the dark, by the way. R.C. Sproul said it like this. Jesus doesn't ask people to crucify their intellect. Okay, you kids in college, 
Take heed to this. He doesn't ask you to crucify your intellect or jump into the darkness. He calls you out of darkness. He doesn't call people to believe the absurd or that which is foolish. Faith, he says, is ultimately trusting what is preeminently trustworthy. End quote. Amen. Verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Abraham, you have no idea what I'm going to do through you. And it's here that we see the intelligence of his faith, meaning he had a right mind. He had correct thinking, sound thinking, thinking that trusted God. He was counting on the omnipotence of God, omnipotent. All-powerful, almighty God. Genesis 15, 5 again says, so shall your offspring be. Now, beloved, the context of Genesis 15, for which he is expositing here, shows us that just before God gave this promise, he called Abraham outside. He said, I want you to look up, boy, to the innumerable stars of heaven. And if you can, count them out. He directs his attention to heaven. See, he was directed to the work of God. A hundred million billion galaxies for which God did what? Spoke into existence. Ex nihilo. He calls all things out of nothing. Right? He was looking to the creator who alone speaks something out of nothing. He was looking to a redeemer who commands death to blossom into life. A redeemer who speaks words of life into the valley of dry bones. Remember Ezekiel 37? The hand of the Lord is upon him. He brought me out, says Ezekiel, and the spirit of the Lord set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Thus says the Lord, verse 5, Thus says the Lord to these bones. Bones, dry, brittle. I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and you shall cause, I shall cause flesh to come upon you, cover you with skin, put breath in you. You shall live. You shall know that I am Yahweh. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, cause flesh to come upon you, cover you with skin, put breath in you, you shall live, you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, rattling. The bones came together, bone to its bone. And it looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as, as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. God speaks, he Produces life. Ephesians 2. You were, we read from this morning, you were dead. The world is filled with walking dead people. 
spiritually blind, dead as we once were, but God. He gives life. Now, most noteworthy to the context here, beloved, this is the God we're talking about, is that Abraham believed that God was fully capable of calling into existence, that is, to speak of or summons that which does not exist as though it does. Assuring and speaking to him of the many nations that do not yet exist, as though they do exist. It's this God. In hope, the scripture said he believed against hope. Now, humanly speaking, was his case hopeless? We'll just say amen to that. Humanly speaking, his case was hopeless. But his case didn't lie in the hands of men. Nor did his case lie within his own means or ability because he had none. He had no ability. Physically speaking, he was a walking dead man. Many nations through an heir... A son that's going to come from my loins? Not possible. I'm an old man. My wife's barren. It was all in God's hands and he knew it. Hope never died. And such hope here was able to add and maintain that spark of optimism through the whole spectrum of this man's life. Can we apply this to our lives today, beloved? Oh, yes, we can. He had hope. What is hope? Hope is the desire for something to happen. What's faith? Confidence that it will. Hope is the desire for something to happen. Faith is the confidence that it will. And notice, notice how Abraham copes with the seemingly impossibility here. The seeming impossibility. I mean, after all, he was just a man. So how does he deal with this, practically speaking? Notice, it's not by way of denial. How many of us are prone to denial? Right? You think about Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner as a family joins together, relatives come together, and there's two people in the family who have like a a decade worth of animosity towards one another. But yet we sit down and we have dinner and we deny the fact that there's hostility between the two. Okay, there's a huge elephant in the room and nobody admits it. Right? Right? Not so with him. You know, Abraham never said, you know, I'm just going to not think about it. I'm not going to think about the fact that I'm a really old man. I'm just going to ignore it. Maybe it'll go away. Okay, on the other hand, he doesn't resort to positive thinking. Don't say anything negative. The negativity will speak the negative into existence. Don't go there. So he he doesn't resort to some false belief about positive thinking or some silly secret law of attraction. Yes, it's silly. It's not denial. It's not possibility thinking. It's not positive thinking. He actually contemplated, the scripture said, his own body. He contemplated his own body, realizing there's no way, humanly speaking, that I'm going to be a father And he was realistic about his wife's condition. My wife's old. I'm old. My body's dead. And my wife's barren. You see, faith doesn't resort to human math, human means, 
human reason, but it trusts in divine math, that his ways are higher than our ways, his thinking far beyond our thinking. Amen? Abraham looked at the situation straight on and still believed God. See, his faith was in the God who could quicken the dead, speak these glorious galaxies into existence out of nothing. A hundred-year-old man with an aged and infertile wife, he, 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 he had looked at his own body and had he trusted in his own body, it would have been impossible to believe But he looked at the one who made the promise and he believed God's what? Word. He believed his word. Verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as what? Dead. Since he was about 100 years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to who? To God. He takes, notice here, he takes and compares two realities, beloved. Two impossibilities. He weighs human impossibility against divine impossibility. Is it impossible for God to do something? Yeah, it is. He looks at the impossibility for him as a mere man compared to that which is impossible for God. Okay, That is the human impossibility of him becoming a father against the divine impossibility of God being able to lie. The divine impossibility of God being able to break his promise. As I said, he's the true promise keeper. You know, our sins of promise breaking and the sins of others who've broken promises given to us or disloyalty towards us often reveals itself in our own faithlessness as we attribute to God's character our sinful character. We think of him as merely human. And his promises is humanly flawed, but not so. Abraham didn't do that. Paul clearly explains here the principle of faith for us. That is taking God at his word. Do you take God at his word? I had to watch my parents trust in the sovereignty of God and the death of my brother just, I don't know how many weeks ago now. At first, it looked like he might come out of this thing. And they trusted God and they prayed that he would. There was bouts of excitement. There's bouts of sorrow. But trusting the word that says God is sovereign, absolutely sovereign, is to receive God's will in spite of our emotional state. It was God's will to take him. So now they have to persevere to trust God's what? Word and will. For his glory and their good. Not necessarily easy, but it is what it is. Amen? Trusted God in any and all circumstances. That's what we're called to do, just as this man Abraham did. He first exercised his faith in God's promise. Secondly, he exercised faith in God's power. 
Promise and power. You know, a great testimony to so many of you listening to you, there's a common theme that I hear from all y'all. And that is God's grace in your life, which is a testimony in how you have grown to trust the sovereign will of God in spite of your weakness, in spite of your deadness, to trust his providence and to trust his power in the midst of all things. That's a testimony I hear regularly, which blesses me greatly. So God wants us to see and he wants us to know, beloved, our complete inability. We're dead, just like this man, in and of ourselves. See, it's then, beloved, that we realize anything that is going to happen must come through him, and then in the end, who gets all the glory? He does. Only he can get the glory. And young Christians... For those of you young in the faith, I don't care if you're 20 or you're 40, you're two, three, four, five, six years in the Lord, let me assure you, the older you get as a Christian, the more weakness you will see. Seasoned saints, let me get an amen. <laughs> Apply this wisdom now. Don't wait until you're old to realize this truth. So many young, zealous believers learn this the hard way. Their pride, their sin, and their arrogance begins to surface, and it stands in the way of gained wisdom. You are dead in and of yourself. Without me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. The vigor and zeal of a young Christian is is a wonderful thing. It really is. But often that vigor and zeal will fool them to think, I can do anything. I'm strong. I'm knowledgeable. I'm gifted. I'm well-read. Only to be foolishly misled. No one does anything for the kingdom of God in their own strength. We see this through this man, do we not? And the older you get, you see more clearly, oh, how the spirit is willing, but the flesh is oh so, oh, it is weak. Learn it now. See, the older you get, you learn much about the kingdom that cannot be known merely by reading or attending lectures or seminars within one's respective theological circles. You just can't learn it that way. To some degree, yes. A lot of times young believers think they can change the world. They can transform life around them. I am one of those. As a young man, that's how, well, how the way I thought as a young believer. Hard charging into the world, man. Becoming this, this excited, you know, spiritual and doctrinal crusader for the truth. Oh, how foolish. What a foolish young man I was. But the older one grows, you realize you can't transform the world, anyone or anything. You'll never convert a soul. It's the Spirit of God. And as one matures, hopefully without too much embarrassment from his his or her zealous youth, you will see clearly the deadness of your own life. And all in any work must come through his power power of God in and through the believer. See, he will use deadness to bring forth life. 
to that which seems hopeless, to that which seems lifeless, to that which seems useless. Such is the life of faith, amen? So don't wait, learn the lesson now. And you'll be used mightily by the Lord. So it's not the energy and vigor of the young, restless, and reformed which is so popular in America right now. That's not going to change the world. And it's not going to add to Christ's kingdom, friends. Amen? Now that's an encouragement to those of you older in the faith. Never think that the passing years render you useless. I don't want to look at anyone directly here. Because then people think, well, he thinks I'm old. So let me look in the glass as a reflection of myself. It doesn't take the youth to change the world. That's a modern evangelical fallacy, beloved. This is what the body of Christ looks like. Young and old. Red, yellow, black, and white. It's the body of Christ. It doesn't take youth to bring about revival. Abraham, here's the point, was an old man. God used this old man to bring about the promises of, a, of our blessed Redeemer that through his line would come Christ. Man! Whew! Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. There again, Genesis 15, 6, he cites it again. Where was this promised son going to come from, beloved? A miracle, that's where. The miraculous hand of God. God promised something that by all human means and measures, it was impossible And Abraham put his faith in the promise of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. Placing our promise, our trust in the promises of God, in his word. You see, if you don't believe that this is the word of God, you most likely are not a Christian. If you don't believe he's the way, the truth, and the life, and there's one mediator between God and man, you're either really confused, and that will be cleared up today, or you're not a Christian. Our only hope in this life, our only hope in the death of this body is to trust the word of Almighty God. Because the world only offers that which is temporal, beloved, amen? You've experienced it. I've experienced it. It's fleeting. It's perishing. They'll provide a good high. You can get a good high in the world. You can. A really good one. It's oh so temporal. You can gain riches. You might gain fame. But it's so temporal. God offers that which is eternal, permanent, and endures forever. Eternal life rests only in the will, the promise, and the power of God. Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 103. I don't know if I have this up for you or not. Well, sure, certainly do. Verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. 
As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had indeed promised. This is where our hope must rest. This is what we must remind one another in times of trial, trouble, tribulation, temptation. Amen? This is what righteousness by faith looks like. It looks like one continual step of faith by way of little steps. Through many individual acts of trust, trusting God, believing God, trial, trusting God, believing God, temptation, trusting God, believing God, trouble, trusting God, believing God, time and time and time again, all make up this one big step of faith and trust in the promise maker. See, he believed, Abraham believed God would make him a great nation. Although by all outward appearances, in contemplating his own body, had no idea how it was going to happen. Okay, you're thinking certain things. I know this promise of God, but I do not see how it can happen. Yep, exactly. Some deep thoughts for you there. So here then is Paul's example for us. A man by, who, who by all human standards faced the impossible. And notice our second point. Paul now pauses briefly in this portion of his exposition on uh, salvation by faith, making application to the truth he's been declaring now. Okay, He brings the principle of justification by faith alone that was applicable to Abraham, And he makes it practical and meaningful to his first century audience, the church at Rome, as well as to us this day. All that was effective in his life is to be experienced by us for the same purpose, okay? Here now we have faith experience, verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but what? For ours also. Paul is rehearsing Abraham's history here for the sake of us who live this side of the cross. When he gets to Romans 15, he's going to write this. Verse 4 Whatever was written in former days was written for our what? Instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Why? Because we're all one big redeemed family. Abraham, David, Paul and every believer into this room right here. One redeemed family. All of which is written for our instruction. This isn't just about Abraham, great saint of old. But it's the faith to which we are now called. We believe as he believed. We trust as he trusted. We confess as he confessed. We hold to the promises of God just as he did. And we walk that road of faith, just as he did. That is, we step out by faith. The unseen, being justified by faith, declared right, declared pure, declared forgiven by God's one and only way of salvation. His plan from the very beginning. 
So the substance of salvation is and always has been the same. It's faith in Jesus, our Redeemer. Verse 24. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our what? Justification. There it is again. This is the heart of the gospel, right here. This is the Christian in Christianity, right here. Delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. And by the way, this is the first place in Scripture where justification and resurrection are placed together. Right here. So our justification rests not only on the perfect obedience of Jesus, not only on the atonement of Jesus, but also, beloved, in the resurrection. Very important. Now, as believers, and when you share the gospel, it's vital, it's essential that we realize that a double imputation was provided through Christ's work on the cross. Double imputation. That is, our sin was imputed to Jesus. Our sin was placed upon Jesus, and he bore alone the unmitigated wrath of God as though he committed every one of those sins, having never committed one of them. Whereas all of his righteousness was imputed to our account as though we had lived a perfect life of obedience. The great exchange, double imputation. This we must know. He was delivered up for our transgressions. But that's not all. He was raised for our justification. Now, Paul could have said... If we think about this theologically, Paul could have said that he was raised for his own justification. That is, he was raised for the sake of his vindication. Proving his innocence. A testimony to the world that he was righteous and that death could not hold him. And although that is true, Paul says he was raised for our justification. Yours. Who believe this morning. So the ground of justifying faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is, beloved, believing in, trusting God's word, because without resurrection and faith, don't miss this, in his resurrection, there's no justification. So if you're here this morning and you believe in Jesus, the historical Jesus, but not in his resurrection, you're not justified. Which means you're not saved. Or your thinking's messed up and needs to be straightened out right now. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. If Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty, your faith is empty. If Christ is not raised, I'm an idiot for doing this for a living. Verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 18. Then those also who've fallen asleep in Christ, in other words, your, our loved ones who believed in Christ and died, have perished. In other words, they're in hell. If Christ hasn't risen from the dead. Do you believe that? Do you believe in that? Do you believe God? Abraham was put into a situation where only faith could avail, and so were we. 
Abraham was faced with the impossibility of that which was dead being transformed to life. That was his body and the body of his wife. And yet he was resolved to believe that even that was not impossible for God. We see that in Hebrews 11, verses 11 and 12, which we don't have time to look at. You can look it up later. Now, we, beloved, are also faced in this day, as were the believers in the first century, faced with that which also seems and sounds impossible. For we must believe that God raised Christ from the dead. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is, and believe where? In your heart. I mean, you entrust yourself to him that God raised him from the dead. You shall be what? Saved. Saved. Not to do either means you're not saved. See, this is not a truth that is accepted by the natural man. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says, The natural man does not receive the things of God, for they are foolishness to him. They'll go sit and listen to lectures and universities and colleges and adopt the philosophies of the world. My daughter had to watch some silly, stupid film this week, and she called me, she texted me. And we resorted right to Colossians 2. Beware lest anyone cheat you with philosophy and empty deceit according to the basic principles of the world, the philosophies of men and the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. I was glad that my kids know more doctrine than they merely have memorized scripture. I'd rather have them know the meaning of scripture than just know the scripture. (laughs) The natural man, this is foolish. When Paul preached at Athens, the cultural and intellectual capital of the world, Acts 17.32, they said they mocked him. To this day, there are many who refuse to believe that Christ is supernaturally alive, reigning as Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So God's word, beloved, is patently clear. Justifying faith is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On the cross, he paid in full the penalty for our sin. But if that was all he accomplished... It would be a failure. Paying the penalty would not be sufficient because if death has the victory, there is no salvation. But Christ rose from the dead just as he promised, amen? And that, you see, becomes the ground of our justification. That's what Paul's conveying here. And if you have truly come to faith in Christ, beloved, and yet you're doubting your salvation... Inevitably, you're doubting God's promises confirmed by way of the resurrection. So again, go back to the cross. Go back to his work. Go back to his worth. And remind yourself from there. So Paul's exposition here is to provide confidence in the Christian life. That there's only one way to be saved. There's one gospel. There's only one way to be justified. There is no favoritism. And that's what he's been communicating through these chapters. There's no favoritism ethnically. There's no favoritism ceremonially. There's no, there's no favoritism legally. The ground is level at the cross. That's why we're called to preach the gospel to every living 
creature. The ground is level. God's first and only plan was and is successful to everyone who has ever or will ever believe. A people from many nations, according to God's word, so shall your descendants be. From every tribe and from every tongue shall your descendants be. So here in the church of Rome, if you think about this, Paul is addressing this church directly. They could look around at one another and see the fulfillment of this glorious promise because this is a church that was made up of many believing Gentiles along with many believing Jews. It's fulfilled right before their eyes. And 2,000 years later, you can look just around this room and see the broader scope of fulfillment. Amen? Two billion living spiritual descendants of Abraham who worship the one who is the divine seed of Abraham, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who died and was raised. Okay, now to close. Chapter 5, verse 1. We're not going to get into this. This is just an introduction. Short and sweet. Paul's conveyed all this truth. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. Justification by faith, what? Alone. Not justification by faith, plus you do this, that, and or the other. Therefore, the big therefore, therefore, because of all this glorious divine truth, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Notice, the Bible teaches that God first justifies us. First, he justifies us, and then the rest of our lives are involved in the process of sanctification. Not the other way around. See, Rome, modern Rome, teaches just the opposite. Catholicism teaches that you have to be sanctified before you can be justified. That is to be inherently righteous, right? Before you enter the presence of God. How hopeless of a situation is that? I'd want to end it. Thus the false belief that one can detour heaven by a stay in purgatory lasting 100, 200, 300, 3 million years. Another false doctrine. He justifies first. Having been justified, you have peace with God. Because what did we have before? Enmity, hostility, war. So thus far in his exposition of Genesis 15, 6, Paul has compared and contrasted salvation by trying and salvation by what? Trusting. Trusting. What Abraham received, what King David received, as he cited earlier in this text, what Paul received is what we, beloved, must receive, and that is salvation is by faith and faith alone. Alone. In Christ alone. According to God's grace alone, as declared in the Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Declared just the moment one places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, which secures their eternal destiny, 
an action accomplished in the past where we see here the consequences and benefits which have daily and eternal implication. And that is peace with God. And I close with this. If you don't believe the word of God, you don't trust in Christ alone for your own salvation, completely trusting by faith the work of Christ, the worth of Christ on your behalf, you're not saved, which means you don't have peace with God. Regardless of how you feel, the scripture declares you don't have peace with God. He's at war with you, and you're at war with him. In the good news, you've already heard it. And I bid you to come to Christ by faith where you sit. We're not going to make you come up here and forward like this. You come forward in your heart and you repent of unbelief and you entrust yourself to Christ. And the Bible says you shall be saved. And you shall have peace with God. And when you have peace with God, you're ex- able to experience the peace of God. Amen? Justification by faith alone. And peace with God that provides the peace of God will be for next time. Amen? Father, we do thank you for justifying faith. We thank you for that glorious gift. We thank you for your redeeming love. We thank you that Salvation has always been accomplished the same way, same means. That is faith in you, the giver of life, the promise maker, the promise keeper. Thank you for the life of your servant Abraham as an example to us. I pray that it would encourage the family of believers here today to run this race with endurance, keeping our eyes affixed on Christ, and assuring them of this gracious gift. And for anyone here this morning who is at war with you, may they realize you're at war with them. And may they become, according to your grace and your spirit, the recipients of divine sovereign grace and the faith to believe your promises, your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.